Warmest greetings to all who listen, and welcome, or welcome back, to Animist Activist Podcast. I'm Bree, your host and writer, coming to you from my hot, hot studio in the wee beginnings of a very hot, hot summer. The garden is lush, the weeds are high, and the kudzu across the street is simply popping off. I'm excited to introduce the topic for our next few episodes on invasive species and weeds. This process will take us on a journey in three parts. First, we'll be discussing invasive species. In part two, a separate episode, we'll be dissecting the philosophical origins of plants as weeds, using dandelions and the grass lawn as a case study. Lastly, in a final third part and episode, we'll traverse unknown territory and get into questions about invasive species in the context of the digital realm. I'm talking algorithms, social media, and egregoric thought forms as they are pervasive online, and how those things affect the human condition, our ability to be embodied, and how that affects our context in material reality. These thoughts, in particular, are not fully formed, but we will explore. And big thanks to my partner and their bringing up this topic with me one night as we were sitting and chatting on our little sofa It's blowing my mind in a good way, so I want to share that with you all. So it's just a little heads up about things that are in the works, but let's do what's happening now. Today's episode is structured on the concept of invasive species and what this means traditionally within human constructs and what this means philosophically from an animistic perspective. Basically, we're going to use animistic perspective to probe, push against, pull away from, dive deeper into, scrape muck from, see clearly into what we mean when we say invasive. We're exploring how ideals of human species hierarchy are inherently woven into conversations around invasives and conservation. What I want in this episode is for us to seek no quick answers. I doubt we will feel the relief of anything resembling a tidy conclusion. If feelings of grief arise surrounding our conversation of climate collapse, just breathe. If you, as listener participant in this sacred audio space, begin to feel anxiety or discomfort around climate guilt, Just breathe. Feel your feet, toes, fingers, heartbeat. Because we are going to do something with these feelings. They may be present, but they are just informants. And we won't let them fester. We'll find a way to channel those into right action. What I want to try for us to do with the meat of this episode is possibly come away with some kind of practice or new concept about communication. So we can be in conversation with who we consider invasive species in our individual communities. We aim to hold respectful space for those beings that find themselves flourishing at a rate that is out of balance with their ecologies and communities. And finally, from that space, Maybe we, as human people, can begin to take the right incremental actions as the opportunities will surely arise. Small awareness, 
small focus, small tips, steps, pardon me, small steps toward right relationship and small steps toward our own callings to be participants of balance in the ecologies that we are a part of. Uh, I know this is a tall order for the human spirit in our current cultural construct and practices at large. For a human person to feel like an agent of balance for our planet, uh, there's so much that makes it seem like we need to capitulate to oppression for our own survival. However, if you're listening to this podcast so far, I'm sure you feel the tug in your heart and in the root of your spirit, this pull to be a harmonic force in the world. So, and I'm, I'm stating this aloud for myself as much as for anyone listening, just for this next little amount of intentional space, let's choose to set aside any guilt and focus on what is possible. So let's take one deep breath. And now we can truly begin. First, we're going to have an invocation. I'm personally going to call in all the energies of plant spirit beings that I have relationship with. I invite you to do the same. Any plant ally that you know. Otherwise, take a moment to create a sacred space for yourself, however you'd like to. Even if you're listening to this while driving, make a mental note or physical motion that helps your spirit body be ready to receive deep communication and to receive it well. Maybe you'll tap your heart space or there's something that you can do with your fingers that helps you know that you're about to listen in a new way. Now, take a moment to think of plant beings you're in relationship with. Name them, perhaps out loud, for yourself, especially if they are considered a weed, or invasive, or poisonous, and invite them to be with you as you listen. Welcome. And come well, all plant spirits who would be present with us today. From me, welcome to Kudzu. I appreciate your wisdom and your abundance is so impressive. Your voice is welcome in this conversation. Many of your children grow steadily outside my window. And lately I've seen more and more fiber art and basketry that human folks have made from vines lovingly harvested from your abundance of kin. Regardless of your apparent usefulness to us human people, I thank you. Even though your abundance causes a depletion of resources for other plant people, I will continue to listen for your wisdom. Uh, a note on this episode, and really on all episodes going forward, I'm going to practice using the term human people and the terms non-human people or other than human people to refer refer to humans and non-humans respectively. So when I say human people, I'm not trying to be redundant. I'm just outlining the collective who I am referring to. This is going to be an attempt at reframing styles of language toward an animist lens, but we'll see how it goes. 
also, I didn't make this up. I, you know, animists everywhere use these kinds of terms to talk about spirits and beings in the material world and spiritual worlds that we occupy. And, um, but putting it in a practice can feel clumsy, but sometimes grammar is not as important as we think it is. So, all right. Let's get into it. As stated, today's deliberate focus is on the concept of invasive species. We are particularly going to explore this through the lens of ideology. I'm more interested in parsing out the whys, who's, and how's of our human ability, perhaps the allowances we make for ourselves culturally, to label certain whole species as invasive or harmful. We'll be looking at science, a little history, and some United States governmental environmental agency resources. That was a mouthful. Basically, government agencies that have to do with the environment. <laughs> We're going to be feeling into the lived relationships between certain plants, animals, and humans. Briefly, we're going to note the scientific awareness surrounding those relationships, because we have to. That's what we're discussing, is the scientific uh, reality and concept of an invasive species. But we're going to emphasis on feeling. Emphasis on the concept of sentience and how the modern world interprets that, versus how the practicing animist interprets that. How could this small shift in perspective change everything about our practices of conservation? That's what we're interested in. Um, how could this small shift change everything about conservation, pest management, and ideas about invasive species, weeds, and really all other, I'm putting this in quotes, undesirables? Now we know there are species that are invasive. We can physically determine environmental stress or damage with material data. We can scientifically make observation, and this data is useful and does not warrant debate. However, here's a personal note. Probably many of you listening can relate to this, um, but personally, I'm someone fairly studied in sociology. That's what I studied in academic university space. And I've been eyeballing the hard sciences for a while. Ever since I began to deconstruct social normativities, I noticed that the physical and social sciences were not free from constraints of a greater social current. Whatever was trending on the pulse of larger cultural human agendas, forces like religion, class systems, economic structures, the physical sciences are also uh, subject to this. They just are. Historically, we find false scientific evidence in support of white racial dominance and heterosexuality, just to name a couple instances where hard science was simply another tool for human agenda. All data is gathered, arranged, and interpreted by some human filter. Generally, in the world of conservation, this data is so, so useful. So I'm not here to eyeball conservation science, really. But how does the ideology of ourselves as the human species, our station as apex in the hierarchy, factor into the ideology of invasive species? 
Basically, why do human people feel empowered to decide what is invasive? Beyond scientific observation and gathering of data, where does this come from? Most importantly, what role does amassing capital and systems of capital play in the existence of invasive species and the ideology surrounding weeds as undesirable plants and pests as undesirable animal species? And of course, how does the animist lens, and especially an animist practice, aid us in undoing our own fixations and obsessions with control as a human people? May we lean on our own understanding of the human being as a contextual part of all that is, human being as one small part of an infinite web, so we might see beyond a centuries-long capitalistic and colonial spell that would pit human people against what we refer to as nature, rather than seeing ourselves as a part of that whole. Okay, it is a lot, so we're going to unpack slowly. First, here is the definition of what constitutes invasive species as provided by the National Wildlife Federation of the United States government. Bear in mind that I'm not utilizing a government resource from a space of authoritative concession. National borders mean nothing to land, they say nothing about Earth, and it means nothing to me. I utilize this resource as a median barometer kind of thing for what Western American culture believes about this topic, about conservation and about species. The National Wildlife Federation says that invasive species can be any kind of living organism, an amphibian, plant, insect, fish, fungus, bacteria, or even an organism's seeds or eggs that is not native to an ecosystem and causes harm. They can harm the environment, the economy, or even human health, species that grow and reproduce quickly and spread aggressively with potential to cause harm are given the label invasive. This is as of February 2023, so either this article was recently updated, I'm sure it was published sooner, um, but they're putting the stamp of the present time on, the, on these words. Uh, the article continues, invasive species are primarily spread by human activities, often unintentionally. People and the goods we use travel around the world very quickly and they often carry uninvited species with them. So I want to take some time to consider this word that they used, uninvited. As animists, we have to have an interest in the language that's used to describe the livelihood and existence and activities of invasive species. Because this language is a direct result of the ideology and the culture using it. So this word, uninvited, puts a locus of responsibility on the non-human species. It is within the scope of human responsibility to cause the spread of invasive species. Factually, it's acknowledged in this article here that we humans cause this spread, but then the language intimates some fault on a species. They were uninvited, but came anyway. And in truth, many invasive species especially ones that I have come to know are in relationship with right now, 
they happen to be carefully removed from their own ecological origin. So it was very intentional. And then they were brought with human beings as we settled and colonized. Um, kudzu, taxonomically known as, and forgive my pronunciation, I'm not versed in Latin, but um, specifically kudzu as Pueraria montana, was propagated by European settlers in Pennsylvania during what is known historically as the Centennial Boom. Kudzu was first prized for their fragrant flowers and decorative yet sturdy vines, and later kudzu was planted intentionally as a conservation effort to minimize erosion. A conservation effort. Yes, indeed. I will circle back to this strange morsel of irony later when we talk a little bit more about the idea of conservation as it stands right now. And it's worth pointing out that I sourced this information from the Nature Conservancy's website uh, from an article titled Kudzu, the invasive vine that ate the South. I won't spend too much time here picking apart this language, but again, I think this is telling of human ideology surrounding invasive species, as if kudzu has a desire to devour and make chaos, where in reality, they are a plant, as well as a being like many others, human beings included, with a biological drive to grow, profligate, and soak up as much sun as they possibly can. There is no malintent within kudzu as a plant spirit or physical being to desecrate the home of so-called native species. They're simply being who they are. Now, circling back to the article from the National Wildlife Federation, they continue to say, higher average temperatures and changes in rain and snow patterns caused by climate change will enable some invasive plant species, such as garlic mustard, kudzu, and purple loosestrife to move into new areas. Insect pest infestations will be more severe as pests such as mountain pine beetle are able to take advantage of drought-weakened plants. So here we are. It is inevitable. We have to discuss the disease that is the fixation on amassing capital. Case study, the zebra or quagga mussel. Here's information I sourced again from the National Wildlife Federation's page on invasive species. Zebra mussels and quagga mussels are virtually identical, both physically and behaviorally. Originally from Eastern Europe, these tiny trespassers were picked up in the ballast water of ocean-going ships and brought to the Great Lakes in 1980s. They spread dramatically, outcompeting native species for food and habitat, and by 1990, zebra mussels and quagga mussels had infested all of the Great Lakes. Now both quagga mussels and zebra mussels have spread to 29 states by hitching rides on boats moving between the Great Lakes and Mississippi River basins. Artificial channels like the Chicago area waterway system facilitate their spread. These man-made channels act like superhighways and are also a pathway for invasive carp, which are currently spreading toward the Great Lakes. So I'm ending the quote for that article and um, just want to point out in a mild amount of research that I did, the Chicago area waterway system first arose from the action taken by the city of Chicago to reverse the flow 
of the Chicago River from its natural direction into Lake Michigan, and they reversed its flow instead into the Mississippi River. This allowed sewage to flow away from the city of Chicago, which sounds like a highly necessary thing. I think it's important to acknowledge that. This is the origin of the Chicago area waterway system as we know it today. Regardless of reason, I think it's wild that human beings ever had or have we have a point in our evolutionary history where we were like, okay, let's reverse the directional flow of this river. Uh, that is literally the best way for us to get sewage away from the city. There are no potential conceivable consequences to reversing the directional flow of this river. Let's do this. Anyway, I just think that's, that blows my mind. Um, back to this article on zebra and quagga mussels. Zebra and quagga mussels harm native fish populations, ruin beaches, and attach to boats, water intake pipes, and other structures, causing the Great Lakes economy billions of dollars a year in damage. They devastate native species by stripping the food web of plankton, which has a cascading effect throughout the ecosystem. Lack of food has caused populations of alewives, salmon, whitefish, and native mussel species to plummet. There are an estimated 10 trillion quagga and zebra mussels in the Great Lakes today. Once zebra and quagga mussels become established in a water body, they are impossible to fully eradicate. Scientists have not yet found solutions that kill zebra and quagga mussels without also harming other wildlife. And end quote. I've looked up photos of these beings, and they're so small. Some are about the size of a dime, but most are smaller, about the size of a pinky fingernail or even a pebble and they're clustered up pretty tightly. Wherever they live, they thrive fully and have no regard for other mollusks' shells, boat hardware, interior of pipes, water dam systems, or anything. It just looks like blankets and blankets of hard clusters of shells, mussels. So I did find the current listed methods of controlling zebra mussel species within quote, closed water systems of power plants. Now, scientifically as well as animistically, we know there's no such thing as a closed water system, but here's the list. Uh, chemical mollusk sides, oxidizing, so like chlorine or chlorine dioxide and non-oxidizing. Manual removal, like high-pressure washing. Dewatering or desiccation, like freezing or using heated air and thermal, steam injection, hot water greater than 32 degrees Celsius. There are more listed, but I think you get the picture. And here's the deal. As human people, we label a species invasive. We attack the lives of those beings as a symptom we've created without looking very deeply at the disease and our fixation on capital, which is something that harms us all. At large, we human people are num numbed, we're numbed by our emphasis on control and our attempts at quelling the symptoms of our behaviors without changing our behavior. That we build literal infrastructure like the Chicago area waterway system that allow these species to proliferate and then claim zebra mussels harm our infrastructure. It's very telling of this truth. Let's touch now on our familiar beast the greater malefic thought form that is capitalism and a globalized economy. In the briefest amount of research, I've come across some publications, books, and articles 
that I will link in the notes on our home base in Substack. And these are an excellent resource to dive deeper into the role of capitalism in the context of climate change. And one of these books I'll be reading soon myself. Um, very interested in The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation, written by Fred Pierce. As an aside, there's some context and commentary around this book that suggests this, this author is perhaps too passively oriented to climate collapse and invasive species and things, um, but that even people who are questioning this book on that on that reason alone, still think it's a good resource and suggest reading it. So, you know, read it with an open mind. I'm going to read it with an open mind, but moving on, I'll, I'll link these things again on Substack. So for our context here today, um, in a more focused uh, approach in regards to invasive species, it's easy to see that capitalism's emphasis on Earth resources as economic value. I think it's created a vacuum that, I theorize, many invasive species have come to fill. Whether this vacuum appeared in the absence of clear-cut hardwood forests, lumber is economically valued, or in the wake of mountaintop removal, coal is economically valued, there are invasive species for that. In terms of poor land management, the agribusiness as an industrial complex that raises corn, beef, pork, chicken, and dairy. This overextraction of land has created a vacuum. There's an invasive species for that. And the Euro colonization of the Americas as a means of getting, having, and hoarding. There are several invasive species for that. Where did the erosion come from for which kudzu was first planted in the southeastern part? of the so-called United States? Where did the aphids come from that are in the process of ending the existence of the eastern and Carolina hemlock trees in Appalachia? It's all about human activity, human desires, and the spread of human species, the spread of human hunger through amassing capital. We are a species on the earth, too. We are here, we spread, and often we behave as though there are no natural, material, or ecological limits I oppose ecofascism at any level. I'm not going to go into that right now. You can. Wikipedia has actually got a great extensive article on ecofascism and its origins, but I oppose this at any level. I refuse to label human beings as an invasive species. And if anything, this research for this podcast episode and my animistic practice creates an even stronger question mark around even using the term invasive. So now we ask, how have we come to allow ourselves as human people the intellectual process of deciding who should or should not exist, where they exist? As humans, we seem to know when ecologies are out of balance, and we often know why and how this came to be. Why are we doing what we're doing? What is conservation? More plainly, conservation of what? Nature, and I put that in quotes, is not some pristine monolith that we have ruined and can never go back to. Ecology is. The land is. Nature is a concept, and we are part of the whole. 
this idea that the natural world doesn't and shouldn't be changing is a myth, and that myth is becoming harmful in and of itself. The more we do as human people, the more we then believe we should do. Globalism and industry have shaped our earth forever. Why should human people believe that our interference should also play a role in the context of the kaleidoscopic, ever-shifting way that our Earth systems organize themselves in order to survive? Well, part of our belief in playing a role in that context is that we are part of that. We're part of the kaleidoscopic, ever-shifting way that Earth systems organize themselves in order to survive. However, we are a species currently beset, uh, beset by illusions of control. And at large, I don't think our culture has capacity to hold, uh, to, to hold humility. So how can we humble ourselves just enough to notice the possibilities that these invasive species provide for our Earth? Maybe they are really messengers meant for us humans in provision of some valuable resources that might offer replacement or at least provide some respite for the beings and ecologies that we humans continue over-extracting. These invasives may offer resources or just wisdom, and all we'd need to harvest this would be a slight pivot, just a change in our human routine. Dandelion greens instead of lettuce, kudzu fiber instead of felled hardwood forest to make paper pulp or other fibers. As someone whose heart beats for and with the wild world, and sings songs with beings that I've never met in the material world, whose names I don't have words for in my native English language, I do not suggest that we be passive, but I do suggest that we become better listeners, observers, and realign ourselves with the natural world. It is not a going back to how things were, how human people once were in touch with their material reality in a way that our species now is largely not. It is from the place we are now in our present timeline, realigning with the natural world, learning a new language of communicating with the natural world, remembering that we are part of that whole and learning to celebrate that to be human beings in the natural fold, not to fight against it, transcend it, control it, or dominate it. I have a saying in my personal practice. I ground my intuition into the earth. Earth's pleasure is my pleasure. And I also say herbicide is suicide. All of this means simply that when we exact control over the natural world, we are exacting control upon ourselves as human people. When we seek to dominate the earth and plunder earth's resources, we do so to ourselves. When we behave as though we are not a part of this natural world, we reap the chaotic consequences of how truly false this is. So from where we are now as a species, what can we do that has not already been done? The animist antidote, the animist fold. I bring a final case study to the sacred space of our conversation. I call in the multivalent consciousnesses and the spiritual cyclicality of the Eastern hemlock tree, the reishi mushroom, specifically Ganoderma sugai. 
and I call in the consciousness of the woolly adelgid aphid, an invasive species. All three live here in Appalachia. All three grow here. Some are newer to this land than others. The woolly adelgid, an aphid that arrived in the United States by way of imported Japanese ornamental hemlocks, is feeding so voraciously on eastern and Carolina hemlock trees that many old groves have already fallen a decade or more ago. It is rare to see a hemlock that isn't covered in the signature white fluff that gives woolly adelgid their name. Here is human grief. We do not want to lose these trees. And as human people, we most of us agree that there is value in the habitat, the backbone of an ecological environment that Eastern and Carolina hemlock trees create for other non-human people. Our traditional mindset in human culture doesn't account for sentient consciousness that is not human. It barely accounts for ecological grief at large, we don't have awareness of this or practice awareness of accounting for non-human sentience. So we don't see how the reishi mushroom is partnering up and doing a service with and for hemlock to preserve their consciousness and their spirit in a new form. So then we don't have potential for knowing that woolly adelgia just is a miraculous form of life, asexually female reproducing insect. It is not necessarily wrong of humans to interfere with the woolly adelgid life force energy. And in these times, we have to move past binaries like what is right or wrong. But there is no way for us to understand the relationship between woolly adelgid spirit consciousness and hemlock tree consciousness. We cannot assume woolly adelgid to be a predator or even a parasite. We cannot assume the design here. We cannot assign human ideals of exchange, fairness, or agreement to beings that are not human. I gently ask, what does surrender look like here? It need not look like giving up or passivity, and it need not look like a lack of human interference. If we, a viable species in our own right, desire to continue to live amongst eastern hemlock trees, then we are capable, and within our realm of beingness to do so, to interfere between woolly adelgid and eastern hemlock. But we cannot assign blame. We cannot assign villain-victim relationship between these species. And that's not to suggest that scientists or people in general project these human notions onto other beings. But it is to say that Sometimes we do, because as human beings centered in our own internalized hierarchy, we cannot help it. As human beings, we create hierarchies. We only see hierarchies. We write villains, heroes, and epic tales. We only see heroes, villains, predators, and prey. Eastern Hemlock, Woolly Adelgid, and Reishi Ganoderma Sugai are all living their lives as earth beings, and we, human people, are responsible for our own human grief at the loss of eastern hemlock populations. Reishi Ganoderma Sugai is an energetically expansive mushroom that almost only grows on dying hemlocks. 
and for a year, three summers back, I decided to apply myself to Reishi Mushroom as a student, to their spirit being as a teacher. The tincture I took was wildcrafted, which means that the mushroom kin was harvested from the Appalachians, from a dying or dead hemlock, a tree that in their own right has deep medicine. Part of hemlock's current medicine, that of the diminishing and of the dying. And Reishi's is that of transmutation. Hemlocks are a conifer evergreen, once deeply and abundantly present in the forests of Appalachia, now, as I've mentioned, heavily under attack and endangered by woolly adelgid, an invasive aphid. Hemlocks are dwindling and classified ecologically as near-threatened, especially in what's known as southern Appalachia. Reishi's commitment to retelling Hemlock's story and carrying her songs on for the world to continue experiencing is one of the most beautiful collaborations in nature I can think of. When hemlock trees become a memory to entities with brains, Reishi will literally carry hemlock and its very cells over and over again, whispered echoes of hemlock in the mycelial network, rubbing up against the various nutrients and chemicals emitted by so many other trees through their roots. So here is some sweetness with our bitterness. When the last tree is gone, there will still be hemlock energy forever. Now we are living through a time that we human beings perceive to be out of balance. We have seen what transpires when great global, ecological, biological, atmospheric change is occurring. We are calling it the Anthropocene. What is our stake in reversing change? How are human people supposed to assert this time before? Because we only know us. We only know a very small part of the, even the geological history of the Earth. We've only been around for so long. I think our deeper knowing as a people tells us all that there is no going back. Change, like Earth and land, just is. But we continue to hold on to some semblance of control over this. Is it grief that compels us so? Maybe. Maybe it's guilt. And at best, it's a keen sense of responsibility that I would argue is still misplaced. The time for certain types of action has come to pass. It came and went. Choices have been made. And there's still time and will be times to make choices. But we have surpassed peak oil. We have surpassed climate crisis. The wildfires are now. The floods are now. We are in it firmly. I dance in and out of this trap myself, the knowing that small acts make big differences, that personal responsibility is healthy, and that the ego in a human will create a maelstrom of thought that usually leads back to the ideologies of control that we all swim in. All of this, and the simultaneous knowing that I am not in charge. We are learning to take positive steps with no promise of influence, completion, hard knowledge, or fixing anything. Collapse is upon us, and we must be ready to live into the question mark of life, earth, multi-species collaboration, the multiverse of wisdoms that our world 
houses in the form of all this life and death here. And so to invasive species, I say thank you. You are, ultimately, a reflection of myself as a human species. Closing out this session, I thank Kudzu for your presence here. I thank all my plant spirit allies that continue voicing what must come through. And thank you, listener participant. I hope that you're well resourced now to start a conversation with the invasive species you've come to know. And at least you've embarked or furthered your journey within this brain teaser, this unlearning hierarchy and remembering multiverses of consciousness and spiritual beings thing. Please let me know via Substack comments who you're in conversation with, which plant allies have helped you be in those conversations. Also hit me up with any questions or general feedback. I'm a small operation, but I deeply care about this project. And I'm so grateful for anyone's participation in this with me. It's just thrilling. <laughs> it just is absolutely thrilling. Thanks for listening to Animist Activist Podcast. If your heart beats for the human relationship with all that is other than and more than human, consider subscribing to receive modest updates on the podcast via Substack, or subscribe or leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Any and all kinds of support is appreciated. If it's a word you think worth spreading, spread the word. And thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>